We are, uh, as always, delighted to have with us Prophet Ed Trout. Um, I figured it out. We we finally have the years right. It was uh, this will be um, 28 years in a row. 28 years that he's been uh, coming here to Covenant Life uh, once a year at least, and it's amazing how the time has flown by. He doesn't look a day older, and um, anyway. I'm going to stop right there. Let's, let's welcome tonight Prophet Ed Trout. Hallelujah. Thank you. Take your seats, family. Take, please sit down. I, I, was, I was only four when I first came. It is a wonderful day today in our ecology or in our lives as Christians. It is a day we remember this momentous occasion that Jesus died for us and to pay a price for us. And today I'd like to talk to you about it, if I can, a little discuss it, just to give you a grasp of what this day really means to you and I individually, what it really means to us. God had devised a salvation plan and had birthed a nation called Israel. Anything to do with El in Hebrew, El, that's the only language in the world that hasn't changed ever, uh, is Hebrew. El means to do with God. Isra means having to contend with or met with or had encountered Israel having to had and contend or, cont- or encountered with God is what it was named and the nation came as a result of that. And this nation grew a 4,000 years and had a confinement, a refinement, a detailed program of law that would keep the relationship in a very pure way. God was looking for a people that would belong to him and be notable and noticed historically throughout the world as God's people. And the way to that was to give them such tight parameters that only would keep them conscious of God day and night, but also would point to the major salvation plan that was to come. In God's planning to bring reconciliation of of the sinful man, there had to be a price to be paid for sin. So God devised not only the law, but also sacrifice. There had to be someone or something had to pay for each sin. And they had a whole program on how much had to be paid per various sins. Even if you didn't sin deliberately, you sinned because it was very hard to keep the many laws. And so there were ritual time that would come and have your, bring your sacrifice to the temple. In Israel, the temple was set up in the time of Jesus. It was the second temple. There had already been one Solomon's temple. Now we've had Herod's temple. Herod the Tetrarch was an incredible builder, very, very clever man. There were many Herods. There weren't just one Herod. There was a whole family of kings that came. The one that, that beheaded John was not the same one that Jesus, or the one that's the time of Jesus being born. Christ was born about 6 BC, about this time of the year, about the 16th or 17th or 18th. We know that for various things, not only was the historical Josephus, the consensus taken, or the census taken throughout the whole region, of the nation, but also we had the very strange star phenomena and movement of different kings from different nations coming at the census, very strange time. All these historical events took place 6 BC and Herod died 4 BC. So for him to have died and have to, for him to have, to have killed all these baby boys, he, then it had to be earlier than BC as we know at the zero. Of course, the Jewish calendar is very different to ours. 
Jesus was taken by Joseph and Mary to Egypt to be protected from this attack of Herod, who was very, very paranoid. He didn't want any king to overthrow him. And he, this God had set up the nation of Israel with a theocratical government. What he wanted from Israel and what he had planned and what he had put in motion was that he ruled his people. These were his people, and the temple was the way we, we would, and the priests and the different Levites, a different order of God was to be carried out that way. They saw Assyrians had king and asked God for a king, and God gave them Saul reluctantly, but he gave them nonetheless. The historical events unfolded with Saul being ripped out of the kingship and then David put into it and David won God's heart not only being a king but also a very spiritual man, a man that would do all that God ever asked him to do and so his throne has been established as the greatest king ever in Israel as we know today. We still call the city of David Bethlehem where he comes from and such like. Very honored to this day King David is. So they had a king who they paid tax to and now they were tithing. So they had added pressure in their life but they wanted a king. In the time of Jesus, we had Herod's, Herod's uh, temple, and the way his temple was built was Herod said there were seven mounts or hills in Jerusalem, and the highest, of course, is Zion and not Moriah, where the actual temple was supposed to be built. Moriah is where Abraham was supposed to have, uh, was supposed to want to sacrifice his son, and so it's a very holy place, and the, and the Arabs or the Muslims believe the same thing about where their life began, the same, very same spot. How ironic could that be? Nevertheless, this is what Herod said. We want the temple to be as high as possible and seen by all. So he built a temple mount. He literally raised the temple and built walls around it. And the piece is known as the Wailing Wall is that western wall that we now know today on the eastern side of the western wall of that particular um, temple mount. The piece that still remains is that wailing wall. And of course, built up high on that it was the mount was the temple. That's what Jesus would see. In the temple, you would come to the outer courts and you would, they say, enter courts with thanksgiving and you'd bring your sacrifice, whatever it would be, or you'd organize your sacrifice to be brought for you beforehand. The actual way to do it was, there was normally, if you came from another place, you would enter the city through the sheep's gate. There are eight different gates in the city. The sheep's gates towards the north, towards the temple, on the other side of the Pool of Bethesda, which is the purification or the mikvah. And they'd come through that gate, bring in their sheep, and they'd purify themselves, and they'd bathe, and they'd wash themselves. Because baptism is not a Christian event. The Christians took, took it on because it came from the Jews. It's always been a ceremony for the Jews to purify themselves on different occasions. And so this baptism or this washing in the mikvah was part of it. And you bring your sheep to the temple. Now to make a sheep valid or even likely to be used by the priest, they have to be cleared by two priests. You cannot bring in a spot, wrinkle or blemish. You cannot bring a faulty looking animal because it wouldn't be a painful, there's no sacrifice really involved. You couldn't bring a lame sheep or some sickly thing and say this is for God. You had to be perfect. And so they inspect your sheep. Two different priests have to inspect it. And they both have to clear it. And once the sheep or the animal's cleared, they'd be taken to a seclusion spot until the next day when sacrifice is officiated. In fact, there was always a bridge that would bring them from across to the temple and you wouldn't see your animal again until the next day. And that's how that sacrifice actually worked in that time. Then came Jesus in the most obscure time because at that time politically, not only did we have a king, we had a descendant from Herod who now was the, the, the Herod from 
Tiberius. He lived in Tiberius and he was assigned reluctantly only the Galilean area because the Romans came and dominated the entire Mediterranean area. It's important I tell you all this because you get the picture clearly of how it infects your life. Please stay with me. Follow with me. I'll I'll make layers, okay? So stay with me. So now the Romans had come and they had dominated all the Mediterranean area and become such a force. Their harsh ways were introducing the crucifix or the impalement of people through dominance. Jewish ways of punishment was basically to stone people. That way you become part of that stoning and guilty. If you are guilty of what you are stoning that person, you become doubly guilty and the fear of God is put into you in a hurry. Because now it's a serious thing and it's a very quick and very merciful death too, being stoned. Not the Romans, they were intimidators. They, their method was to impale their enemies. Anybody resisting the Roman Empire or offending the Roman Empire would be impaled, crucified and Lord knows many different ways. They would tie them, break their bones, they would nail them, they would do all kinds of awful things upside down, they would do various things to, just to make them suffer. And what they would do, they would line the streets as you come into the city and you'd see all these people suffering and dying and on the top would be the actual offense or crime that would cause their, have caused their death. And so you bring in your children and have going into the city to do market, to buy anything, you'd have to watch all these crucifixes along the side. And of course that makes Jesus' crucifix so very different because his said, instead of saying robber, thief, murder, rapist, or factionist, he would say on top there, the king of the Jews. Such, that was his offense. So odd was the, how odd, and it was all, everything was biblically correct to be completely symbolic and in line. God did everything symbolically, right down to the sacrifice. Just like any lamb, he had to be cleared by two priests. He had to be Herod and, of course, Pilate. They both had to clear him and say, we can find no wrong in him. Had to be publicly said. Both of them had to say it, so to, because he was on the on a kingly level, wasn't just an ordinary sheep. And so God had kept, and he was taken to the Roman capture area that was right next to the temple, a different building. And so that's what the Romans had built and used for their for their military. And they was kept there until the day of sacrifice. And so everything was very parallel and biblically done exactly in order. But what I want to read to you to this evening is from the book of John. Please keep your excitement down. It's way too overwhelming. John chapter 10, 10 and verse 11, 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. They understood shepherd and sheep very clearly. It was a very good symbol of, theirs, of their language. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Now, you've heard these words so many years and religiously you understand it because you, you come up with sweet Lord Jesus stories. But I'm from a Jewish family and we don't know language like this. We have 24 books in our Jewish Bible and we have to recite them all the time and we have very strict uh, things to adhere to all the time. If you, it depends how orthodox you are. But either way, to say words like I'm the good shepherd for 4,000 years, Israel had been a nation under God, and now they were crying to God for a deliverer because they needed someone to set them free from the Romans because it was more than terrible. You had, of course, you remember the government God originally wanted was to rule by the temple, so you had your priest, the high priest's name was Caiaphas, and it was very political and very strange in the time 
of Jesus, this Caiaphas, this order of Pharisees and priests were always in conflict and trying to reach the Romans and manipulate the Romans to keep peace because they had such a strong influence, as did, of course, uh, Herod, who was up in, stayed in Galilee, where John's head cut off, he was Mr. Nobody, really. He was a very strange uh, politician in so many ways and afraid of so many things, too. He was a very strange. Jesus called him a cunning fox. Jesus called him that because he was. He was very cunning, and so we had all these political things going <coughs> on the same day. To add to our, to our interest in, of environment at the time of Jesus, I hope I'm not boring you. There was a split, a division, an upheaval in the main temple of Israel in Jerusalem. A little earlier than that, they had, there was a group that arose that said, you guys are way too carnal and become too compromised and too friendly with the Romans and you become like them. You're playing too many games. You're not spiritual enough. And they wanted God. There was a small group. And they were, of course, there was five major groups in that time when there were zealots. But of these zealots that were so zealous for God, a group formed called the Hessians. And they decided to rebel against the, against the, the temple and they moved down to what was known as the Dead Sea area, the desert at 1,000 feet below sea level. And it's so warm there, but they established a monastery called Qumran. And there was no food and nothing to eat, just a little bit of water, but they fasted an awful lot. And we find a lot of evidence, a lot, of John the Baptist being not only a zealot, but also spending a lot of time there, as did Jesus. Jesus had, there's reason to believe that he had, was very largely influenced by John the Baptist for a certain season of his life, as he was baptized by him. And of course, they knew each other, they were cousins. He was a little few months older than Jesus, so he also died at the age of 33. You're not bored with all this stuff. This is all stuff I live in day and night. I love this stuff so much because it's so real to me. He's very real to me. Potter, he's really my Savior, my Lord, my Master. Jesus is. But you overexcited in this room. You need to take it down a notch. <laughs> I love the excitement here in Pennsylvania. So, if you understand at this time that these Hessians, they moved down to this monastery they established, and now... Do they, want to, they want to maintain the authenticity and purity of God's word so they are now by hand copying 24 books of the Bible that they have accepted. They only copy 23. They don't copy 24. The 24th one, Esther, doesn't mention God so they're not, it's not spiritual enough. That's exactly the truth. And then they ended up with 50 copies of the book of Genesis and we have 13 caves known as the Dead Sea Scroll Caves that we have these books for were found in. Oddly enough, they were buried or hidden the time of Jesus and right before Israel became a nation almost 2,000 years later, uncovered. Un the timing is so uncanny. And it proves to us because we had no proof that the scripture had not failed. We had no printing press, no way of copying the stuff, no way of knowing that it kept it, maintained its integrity. And when they undid these Dead Sea Scrolls that with original manuscripts they found, it was exactly not one single letter had gotten lost. Not one. Not one. It's phenomenal that they, they, they kept the word all those years. Remember, Israel was scattered for 2,000 years. It was scattered all over the world. There was no Israel anymore. They never lost the accuracy of their word. Pretty amazing, right? Only God could do that. Now, this, this Hessian group produced, as you know, and all that time produced Jesus, produced John the Baptist, who was, who was now preaching revival. He was born to prepare the way. What way would that be? He had to try and sound the trumpet to the nation of Israel, because they were really God's people. 4,000 years, they were God's people, to make them aware 
of God again because they had become so infiltrated as we have in America. Hollywood has diluted our Christendom in the last 30 years completely visible and notably. What we thought as offensive or ungodly 30 years ago has become everyday life. 30 years ago, if you had said that we, were, we would have same-sex marriage in our nation, we would have laughed, we thought totally ridiculous, got angry. Now it's, they almost protected gay. You dare not say a word. It's fashionable. R-rated movies, 20, 30 years ago. Christian, never watch an R-rated movie today. It's, it's commonplace. People just become conscience-seared because we've been infiltrated by the morals of Hollywood. It's the same, it's the same principle. But be, be at peace because he said he would build his church. Now, so this nation of Israel gets this revivalist rising up and all he knows, the only language he knows is what he's learned from the Hessians, to repent and to be holy. He was so extremely holy and preached the kingdom constantly. Well, the, the Israel preached God's way and repentance to God. He baptized them, which is very common. It was not an unusual thing. They wouldn't find it strange. It was a very normal thing for a Jew. And a lot of uh, the disciples that followed Jesus were revivalists following John, as did Jesus. That's how we met Peter. Peter gets into the picture because Andrew is there because Jesus is now healing. Unlike John, he's doing miracles too. So there's another revivalist in the picture. This time, this revivalist called Jesus from Nazareth is not preaching repentance, unlike John. He's got a whole different take. It is so bizarre. He says, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden. John's saying, repent, kingdom of God's at hand. You're a bunch of snakes and vipers. You're bad people. And here's Jesus saying, come to me. And all the prostitutes and all the evil people, the fairy, all the ones that are the society's dregs come and follow him. You've got this complete contrast. So much so that John, at the end of his life, sends word, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Excuse me, didn't you prophesy I'm the one? Now you're telling me you're not sure? Because it was so controversial. And he came to establish a kingdom. In his own journey, Jesus made, a, made a, a base in Capernaum because it was the most northern city and it was the free press call for him there. Because if you, everybody came through Capernaum, slept the night and went to the rest of the city. So whatever happened supernaturally, whatever message he preached went from there. That's why the 5,000 came there. 5,000 is a lot of Jews to find, come from all over. There's no buses, trains or cars. They walked. They made great effort to come. 5,000 people from all over because of the word coming from Capernaum. Traders would come to Capernaum, hear what's going on, and go tell wherever they were going. So it was a great strategic city. Now, in the northern part of, that, of the Capernaum city, you go up and you follow the valley, which is, called, which is where uh, the Jordan runs from the mountains, that my, the, caps of the, of the ice caps melt, and in springtime they come and they flood the that whole valleys and they come down into the Galilee Sea. That whole area is called Caesarea Philippi. You may have heard of it in the Bible. That particular area, just, for, just by the by, when the Jews came back to Israel in 1948, the only land that was freely available was that land because nobody wanted it. It was always the worst place to grow anything because of the constant flooding in the marshes and such like. And they settled there because it was cheap there. And they, in the first generation, planted all they could and tried every scientific way and everything failed. The second generation, 25 years later, they were still planting and still failed. They failed twice. 
Finally, as a whole group of people in that valley, they asked God to help them and they changed the names of all those towns and gave them Hebrew names of victory. And then God gave them wisdom and they planted eucalyptus trees which consume eight times the amount of water that a normal tree would. And it's now become historically the most fertile place. Uh, when I take a tour, I always show them the ginormous fruits that grow there so naturally because it's so enriched over the years and never been used. And God has prospered them. Should you continue, end up in the place called the Gates of Hell. And the Gates of Hell is the end of this, this area, this little area, which goes to the border of Assyria. And at the border of Assyria, you have this Gates of Hell, which is the mountain range, a red, very reddish look, and very striking mountain range. With inside it is a water source that the, the, of all the Philistines was the Canaanites that were the most disliked. Uh, the, the Canaanite woman that came and asked Jesus to help her, they were the most disliked because they sacrificed innocent people in their blood into this fountain because this is a, the God of Apollos. They brought out, built a whole temple there and it was called the gates of hell because of that because they were killing these innocent children. To this day, it's still got that same name, very historical. And they've got pictures and places where they, we can feel this strange heaviness there and the, the Apollos temple there of God of Apollos to get the water to flow. And they're, let the blood drip in there until it would change color and then he was appeased. And so it was an awful practice they had. And Jesus came there and for the first time, he uses the word church. He said, I will build my church. He asked Peter, who do people say that I am when he got to the gates of hell? Caesarea Philippi. And that's when he began, because it's hardly, it was very sparsely populated until that little area where the Canaanites were and that's where he birthed his church, right in the very northern part of the country. Now, I'm telling you all this because until then, all we had was a nation of Israel that were in relationship with God by, through the law and through sacrifice. They had to continue to keep the sacrifices going to maintain their relationship with God. Otherwise, there'd be consequences for them. Obedience and they had to obey God and do abide by the law and sacrifice. Now, Jesus comes, introduces a whole new kingdom. And that's why he says, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. So he's introducing a whole new clan. This is not John the Baptist language. This is now the language of Jesus. A whole different kind of words coming out of it, wording. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This was the agreement. To have a redemptive group of people that would follow Jesus to rescue these people that didn't have to go abide by the law or live by the sacrifice, there had to be once and for all a sacrifice. And Jesus agreed to it. He did not want to die. Please understand, he didn't say, oh, I'd like to do that. In fact, the devil knew subtly how to wear him down. Because he asks Peter, and Peter says, you're the son of God. And minutes later, after telling them what's going to happen, the son of man who's live in the hands of enemies, die, to explain the horror of his waiting for him, Peter says, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says to him, having just said to him, blessed are you, he says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because he recognizes the subtlety of the devil using Peter, who just can't acknowledge him as son of God, to try and sow a seed in his mind and heart that he doesn't have to die. Because he knew 
he did. He didn't like it, but he knew. I know he didn't like it because in Gethsemane, he prayed. He said, drops of blood, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to do it. It wasn't fun for him. When a man's on death row, he know, doesn't know what's going to happen. They're always big mouth until the very last minute. Then they get afraid because they know they're going to die. They don't know how they're going to die. They don't know what it feels like. Jesus not only knew he was going to die, he knew the suffering he had to do. Let me tell you, they, don't, they do not execute you and whip you. That's not normal. You have different punishments. You have 10 lashes, 3 lashes, 20 lashes. 39 lashes is the maximum. No one survives 39 lashes easily. And they crucified him. When, the, when, they, when they whipped him, it was to get him free. They want, the, the pilot was the governor pointed there by Caesar and he was trying to find a way of not killing the man because he looked at him, talked to him and could find nothing wrong with him. And in his very smart, when his wife, now let me tell you, those Romans were very much suspicious. So when she said, I had a dream about him last night, I was so bothered by this dream, it meant a lot to them. Because they had all kinds of beliefs and myth, mythical ideas, those Romans. They had a lot of ideas. And so it was really bothersome to him, and he was looking for a way out. So when he whipped him, he hoped it would be enough. It still wasn't enough. And he offers them Barabbas. What a crazy thing. Now, Barabbas is an interesting man. There are many theologians who will tell you that he was uh, a riotist and he a factionist, which was very understandable. That's why I take my tours up Masada to show them how that the ones that resisted the Romans for 50 years, 60 years, they stayed up there, did not subject themselves to the Romans. And the Romans could have just left them there. They weren't bothering anybody. But because they, did, they were so prideful and wanted to show the power of force and who they are, they built that ramp with the Jews as slaves, made them build a ramp to get to kill them up there, to show them this insurrection. And that's what Barabbas, that they say he was. My difficulty was, if Pilate is Caesar's governor, he's not going to offer them Barabbas, who's against the Roman Empire, raising up followers, offer them him instead of Jesus, because he's an enemy, his own personal enemy. So he had to be more than that. He had to be a murderer, which he was, which Peter refers to in the book of Acts chapter 3, verse 14, I believe it is. He refers to him, you asked for that murderer instead of, letting, for, instead of the place of Jesus. You Jews did that. He accuses them. And then he lets them off the hook and says, because you're ignorant, so I excuse you now. So he let them get it, let them pass. So they have all these, these pressures going on all at the same time going on because Jesus had to be that very thing. He had to be that lamb. He had to be, a, he had to be cleared by two very important people. Even Caiaphas could not, could not really prove anything in his life. But he had to. He was under such political pressure all the time. And he said, it's better one man die than the whole nation. And it was so prophetic. He had no idea what he was doing. It was such a, a strange, intense time. And Jesus says, this is a point I want to make tonight, what I want you to understand. And he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, by the way. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. People are always wondering about other Christians, but that's what Jesus said. It's not, don't bother about them. It's not your job to worry about other Christians. God will take care of his church, and I will bring them in also. They too will hear my voice, and we'll be one flock, one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me, the reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Pilate says to him, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? 
You know what Jesus says to him? You have nothing except God gave it to you. And that's true. I want you to grab this as children of God today. Nobody can do to you without God's mission. No one has power over you unless God gives it. And Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Because here he is, completely subject, in this bizarre situation, he's done nothing wrong, but they will exchange and let Barabbas, who's actually a murderer and full of insurrection, they'll turn him loose. He was going to be executed. They don't execute people for robbing. For your insurrection, yes, for you. If you're rebelling against the state, that's true. They'll, they'll kill you all if you're a murderer. And he was definitely, he's called a murderer by, by Peter. So they all knew him as a murderer, as a killer. And they, they shouted, the Jews would rather have that man in the streets than set, Jesus, than set Jesus free. Now the crowd, I have to wonder who all was in the crowd. I have to wonder whether the Romans didn't have their own group or whether Caiaphas didn't have a whole group that he supported or paid them to all shout to cheer because it was very awkward for him. He'd become a real difficult situation because now this whole new church, this whole new group that he's little sect, they called it eventually a Nazarene sect, this group that become following him. It wasn't like John the Baptist was preaching repentance that they could understand because they're bringing the Jews back to church, to temple. No, this is something else. This is something so different that they came often to question him. They came often to find fault him. And each time he'd, he would have a whole wonderful answer. He would, he would always talk about loving your enemies and turning the cheek and all these things are so confusing. They could not fault him with scriptures. They try to fault him and try and get him in trouble with Caesar. They ask him, well, what should we do? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, where's the coin? Show me. Whose head is that? He always had a wonderful, wise answer for them all. They could never catch him. And Caiaphas, and he, the high priest, was so much political unrest, and he couldn't keep harmony amongst his leadership. He already had a a faction leave and start there, down there, the Dead Sea, for some years already now. And now there's things, another split coming, a whole group following Jesus. He had to do something. And the manipulation of the pilot and, and the Herod, the whole thing was bizarre going on. But it was all planned. It had to be that time for the Savior to die for you. And Jesus says, no one takes my life. I give it up. I, I lay it down. Why would you do that? I'm fully persuaded that if you were the only person left, Johnny, if you were the only person on earth, he still would have done it. I really, I really believe that. I really believe that Jesus was committed all the way. It was a struggle for him in many ways, many times. But he was, you had to be every much but human. He couldn't be a lamb that was perfected with the power of God. He had to, he had to be every but human to overcome temptation. Scripture says that he can able to secure us. And what I want you to understand is this, 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 this tremendous day that we celebrate today How important is in your life the price that he so willingly paid for you? Because if you wanted to reconcile with God, you'd have to become a Jew and follow all the rituals and laws, not just once, but continually. Jesus paid one price for all, forever. He had to become the complete and ultimate sacrifice. You don't have to try anymore. That you reconcile, you have complete liberty it was such a wonderful thing to have the presence of God 
The outer courts had the sacrificing, and the inner courts you brought the, the prayers for the nation and other different sacrifice for the people. Then you went into the temple, and the temple you had the showbread and you had the incense. Incense was day and night for the prayers, to offer the prayers, because it's the only one of your five senses that's not corrupted by sin. Your nose doesn't have sin, never has can sin. Well, now with the snorkeling, I suppose, but maybe before you couldn't sin with your nose. And then you have the Holy of Holies, which was reserved for once a year. It was such an amazing thing that they had a ceremonial mikvah, a bath, right in front of the Holy of Holies, that the high priest, number one, had to go in there. And he had to be sanctified, all the process, get ready for that one day to pray for the entire nation. And behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant with the budding rod and the, and the tablets inside then was holy. And Uzzah already touched it once and got killed, but it was that precious. And they would tie, after the ceremonial washing, you had to wear a special robe because you wouldn't let her have the smell of perspiration. It was such a ceremony. And they would tie your, your ankle to the rope and you, you, there, was no, there was no way of getting into that place. You had to go under this heavy, heavy curtain. And the way that you had to go in was a sign of humiliation, of humbling your heart and getting inside. Then there, one priest only could make the prayer for the nation. If the glory of God killed him, they would be able to pull him out with a rope. They couldn't leave him there. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, the scripture says that veil, that enormous heavy curtain was ripped from top to bottom. Not because of anger, but because God says, now you don't need a high priest. Now you don't need the sacrifice in the outer court and the inner court. You don't need the prayer of incense. You don't need the showbread. You don't need anything but just to go straight in because of what Jesus did. And so often we don't take the liberty. We walk right past that open curtain to go into the Holy Holy. We walk right past it. And he paid us such an expensive price. What an expensive price to waste. I heard a story of a woman once that went on a cruise. Her children had saved up. So it was a dream to go on a cruise and she was a widow and so she finally got to go on this cruise and she brought all the snacks and food she could carry with her and she was enjoying the cruise so much and she'd go past the, re- the place where they were eating watch all the wonderful food and when her food ran out she offered herself to one of the captains to see if she could find some work because she was so hungry and he laughed at her and said bring me your ticket and he brought, she brought the ticket and he began to pay her and said look here it says here the whole of this ticket is entitled to everything on the ship that he paid for you could have had this, anything, any food here anytime you want you didn't read your ticket correctly if we don't read our Bibles and know what we are what he paid for what a waste what a waste I, I can't stand to watch Jesus being crucified in that movie The, uh, the Passion uh, Mel Gibson's movie I've watched, tried to watch it three or four times it, it just tears me up inside it's so real to me and I just can't stand it and so I told the Lord I just can't stand to watch it I feel so bad I did this I caused this and the Lord spoke to me and said he told me this to me personally he said you can't change what's happened already it's been paid for the best you could do for me now is not waste it Take the fullness that I paid for, enjoy it, live the fullness that so it was least worth, worth my while. So now we belong to, he, he's the good shepherd, he's the one that bought us, he's the one that represents us. By dying on the cross, he had to go and buy us his people. We don't have to go under the law. That's why Paul says, you foolish Galatians, what is wrong with you people? You started out in grace and you go to the law. It's always that religious, uncanny stuff. That's why as a Jew, I'm always 
frustrated when I find Christians putting a prayer shawl on and wearing yarmulkes. They want to go back to some religious order. You're free. You don't need that stuff. Shake it off. You don't even know what a prayer shawl is. It's got 536 different knots and things. You've got to recite all those prayers every day. You nuts. Why would you want to do that? You're going to form some other religious thing. You've got such freedom to enter the Holy of Holies. You've been restored, reconciled to God. Why would you want to form a religion? Why? It's the strangest phenomenon we have. When they could have had God's presence on the, that, on, in the desert, the Jews, they chose a golden calf that they made. How stupid is that? It's because we want to have something we can control. Got to have a religious format we can control because this whole thing by faith, I can't even see or touch him. How can I? But I need something I can touch. I can see the golden calf and I can worship that. But I can't worship a God I can't see. That's exactly what he wants. He says, by faith are you saved. By faith are you justified. By faith, by faith, by faith. We know by faith. Can you say amen? amen? He paid a very dear price for you. He loves you so much so you can stop your whining. And you're complaining about whatever complaint you'll have. You'll always have something to complain about. Especially if you're Jewish. It's an anointing of murmuring. <laughs> I was telling them today, the Jews have their own language. So, Issy, how are you? You should ask how I am. <laughs> it's always something. I don't even want to ask how you are because you're not going to... One of my... Tour guide friends just called me a few days ago and he's had a heart transplant some years ago and I asked, how's your health? How's your heart doing? I'm talking to you, am I not? That's, that's his answer to me. <laughs> I'm not dead is what he's telling me. Well, I, I wanted to know if you was de- how you feeling, but he couldn't, he's such a Jew. Oh. <laughs> I had an um, Israeli come work for me in my house. Uh, he was an artisan. I, I hired someone. I didn't know he was going to be an Israeli and he was very interesting and he looked at me and said, you Jewish? I said, how do you know? I said, we feel it, we know. <laughs> I said, I can't escape, thank God Hitler's dead. <laughs> he killed a lot of my family. So, here's the thing. I want you to rejoice today in your heart and know that Jesus paid a price and understand the fullness of what he died for. If you, you know, we try to stop sinning because we taught this way, it's wrong. Don't do it, don't do it. We, it's like dieting. If you're on diet, you always worry what you're eating. You always worry about food, you know. When you're on diet, you, you start counting your points. If I eat this, how many points will I have left for today? Yeah, it's ridiculous. But if you're not counting points, if you not, then, you, then you don't think about food. If you're not always counting sin, you don't think if you get in the presence of God, you don't, think, you don't have time or space or energy. You don't have thought for, for, the, for that stuff. You don't have desire. If you have sin, it's only a reflection of something missing inside of you. Sin is just the, the evidence of your lack of God in your life. So when you're finding those struggles in your life, instead of trying to overcome them, just get more of God. Just get the hold of the Lord more and you'll naturally shake up all that nonsense in your life. You listen to me. But the, you need to know, if you see things in your life that ought not to be, you need to start pursuing Him. He wants you to want Him. And He's so deserving. He's paid such a price for you to have this wonderful freedom, this wonderful salvation. It's amazing salvation. You know, the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 2, how shall we ever escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Today I was thinking, this morning when I woke up, there are a lot of religious leaders or famous spiritual orders that I know of, that not everybody knows of, that, I mean, not, not everyone knows who Hare Krishna really is, or Buddha, what, there's nothing, I've just I'd seen a Buddha statue, I've no idea who Buddha is. But everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody's heard that name. 
Everybody, just very f- small pockets of secluded places in India or somewhere that they might not have heard, but most everybody in the world has heard of the name of Jesus. He's world famous. He's the Savior and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. No one like him, and he loves you as if you're the only one. And he cares about you. People judge you and have lack of understanding. They want to put you in a box, but not the Lord. He's got, he's got your back. He's got your back, y'all. Got to get some life out of these people. It's like, my Lord. Sleepy hollow. Yep. I must take you to Africa with me, South Africa. You'll be shocked. You'll never find one church that's got empty seats in it. Not one. They're there before I even get there. In the meetings, they line the backs. They're standing up and they, you can say, Jesus is Lord. And they make such a noise like, okay, thank you. Calm it down. (laughs) They're so excited for God there. So excited. You can't go to a mall without someone there standing in the middle of the courtyard preaching somewhere. It's always someone excited for the Lord. That's how America used to be. Rick, you can remember those days of the 1950s, right? I'm just saying, just saying, Rick. You can remember them, right? Yeah, do. Ancient of days. So when you took, partook of the, the emblems today, for me, this is the time when we have Passover, Pascha, Passover time. We celebrate coming out of, out of Egypt. We always set a table with uh, unleavened bread, matzah, and wine, not grape juice. We do that in the church for people that are alcoholic, just that you know. That's why we do it. It's, it's, the, it's the actual symbol that counts. We don't want to give you wine in case it sets you off and anybody else might, one person, we don't want to do that because someone to stumble. Just you understand. And <clears throat> we always set a place for Elijah because as Jews, we are expecting Elijah's return. The way you celebrate Easter, we celebrate the turn of Elijah, and after having supper, we will, someone will pretend that from knocking at the front door and send one of the, some of the kids to go and check where it is to go find Elijah, and we'll hide the, his bread and his wine and say, oh, you missed him, he came and he had, he really partook with us. And then it, it's a whole fun thing we to look for, it, so the kids love it. When Jesus came and said, I've longed to have the supper with you, and he sat down before the Passover, Passover and he, of course, he after he washed their feet, but he broke the bread and he took, he took Elijah's bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood. Now, to tell a Jew to drink blood is like, heck no, we're not doing that. Because we are groomed, I was hearing today from an Italian-born man that his mama made bloodwurst or blood sausage. And it is absolutely revolting for a Jew to think of eating blood. Because we're told we cannot eat blood, it's the life is in the blood. Of course, it's very popular in Europe, all over Europe they do it, and Germans love it. They cook it, of course, it's not raw, but um, the life is in the blood. So we, the whole way of kosher is to drain the animal completely. There must be no blood in the animal. That's very important, what God commands. And so uh, to tell a Jew, this is my cup, this is my blood, drink, it's like, no, no, that ain't happening. So it had to be a reconditioning of their minds. The whole event was so profound. What really got me irritated was after all that wonderful ceremony, washing their feet, they start debating. So which one, of, which one is the great? I think I think I should be a leader. If Jesus dies, I'm going to be the next. They, they are such idiots. 
they are arguing who's the greatest. I want to get up and slap them. That's what I want to do. What's wrong with you people? You're with the Son of God and all you care about who you think. And Jesus said, hey, you're not like those that lord over each other. They are, they are beneficiaries. You're not like that. He's the servant. He is the great one amongst you. He sets the whole standard for us, for them. And, but they're struggling. I mean, I don't know why they've been through the whole process to, think, to try and find a position and who's going to be better. And we, we don't do that. In this church, there, there is no one better. Jesus is the Lord. And he appoints who he wants to. The pastor's not there because he's better. It's because God chose him. Big difference. And God chose him and we're all family. All right. You guys are just overexcited, so I'm going to stop now. I don't want you to have a hernia or something. <laughs>